Welcome into a brand new episode of the Whole Story Podcast. I'm Alex Fuse, and joining me right now is the legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster and MLB Network play-by-play broadcaster, none other than Bob Costas. Bob, thank you so much for joining today. How's everything been with you? Not too bad, Alex. Is this really the whole story? Because if it's the whole story, we're going to be here for a whole long time. (laughs) Uh, We're going to touch on baseball this offseason and then get into your career and then wrap it up at the end. First, I have to ask you this, though. When did you know you were going to make it in broadcasting? Well, when I arrived in St. Louis at age 22, after leaving Syracuse University, uh, I wasn't at all sure how that would work out. I thought I was really uh, in over my head. I'd done minor league hockey during my senior year at Syracuse in the old Eastern Hockey League, and that had been well-received, but that's minor league hockey on the radio. I then made a leap to KMOX Radio in St. Louis, one of the great stations in the country, 50,000 watts, the flagship of the sprawling Cardinals radio network and the home station of legendary broadcasters going back many generations. So I thought maybe this is where I get exposed as being not quite ready for anything close to the big time. And while I certainly hope I got better in the ensuing years, at age 22 at KMOX, I was very well received. Uh, I never had the notion that therefore I could rest on my laurels. I still felt like uh, I had a whole lot to do in my career. And my focus was really just to get better as a broadcaster, not to make another step beyond KMOX. In fact, in my mind then, in the mid-1970s, if you had said to me that for the next several decades, you'd be at KMOX, maybe getting better assignments, but you'd be there, I would have said, wow, that's great. You mean I didn't get fired? You mean I could be here for 25, 30 years? That was really when I thought, well, I can make a living at this. I'm going to be a professional broadcaster uh, for the rest of my working life. Uh, I had no idea that things then would turn out as well as they did, uh, first with CBS TV uh, briefly, and then the 40 years at NBC and all the different things that that entailed, including branching out to HBO and, and all the assignments that I had. I had no idea about that or that those things would go as well as they generally did. But the specific answer to your question is, at age 22, doing the Spirits of St. Louis in the old ABA on KMOX, I knew then that you know I wouldn't be having to shift career ambitions. And you mentioned, uh, MLB, your passion for baseball. Let's dive into this offseason. Shohei Otani joined the Dodgers. You've, in this past offseason, have made comparisons to Otani to Jordan-like-esque. What do you think and what can you make of this Dodger super team that's now spearheaded with Shohei Otani at the forefront? Let's get to the Dodgers second here and the larger point that you alluded to first. And the point beyond that is the internet distorts almost everything. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I'm not dumb enough to directly compare Shohei Otani to Michael Jordan, which is why I never did. But the internet has to simplify everything for clicks. And so Bob Costas says Otani is baseball's Michael Jordan. Otani has been in baseball for several years. And the average casual sports fan cannot identify him. 
Michael Jordan was a gigantic star from the moment he entered the NBA because college basketball, especially then, was a feeder system. Players didn't stay for one year. Michael Jordan stayed for three years. And one of them included a game-winning shot uh, for the, in the NCAA championship game. And it also included being part of the gold medal winning Olympic team in 1984 and American Olympics in Los Angeles. And then he won six NBA titles and was the subject of Nike commercials and the centerpiece of the 92 Dream Team. You'd have to be an idiot to say that Shohei Otani, remarkable as he is, is anywhere close to Michael Jordan. What I said was, and this is what apparently is so difficult to grasp now, there are nuanced points that can be made. Not everything is binary. Not everything is primary colors. I said that it was better for baseball, not for any one fan base. It's not a matter of rooting for the Dodgers over the Blue Jays or anybody else. That for baseball overall, it was better that he landed in L.A. than almost any other place not just because the Dodgers had the resources to pull off the kind of deal that they and Otani agreed to, but because the Dodgers are almost always good. They're frustrating in that they don't always get to the World Series, but you can be guaranteed they're going to be in the postseason, which never happened for Otani, just down the road with the Angels. And because of the proximity to Hollywood and all the rest, they can maximize the marketing aspect of it. And there will be a fascination, as there already is with baseball fans, there can be a larger fascination with Otani, which makes Otani comparable to Jordan in this one respect. Jordan had value not just to the Chicago Bulls, he had value to the NBA overall. In fact, it was jokingly said that the other team owners should chip in and help the Bulls pay his salary. So in that respect, Otani is the only guy that has that kind of of not that people didn't come out to see Aaron Judge, of course, or to see Mike Trout when he's healthy, of course. But Otani is the best example of that in baseball. As I said, the closest thing they have to Michael Jordan. Whatever horse was second in the Belmont in 1973 to Secretariat was the closest horse to Secretariat, was also closer to last than to first. This is a point that perhaps someone with a functioning brain could grasp. Not to say you, but here's the les lesson to you, Alex. Not everything that appears on the internet is exactly as it appears. In fact, most of it is not. The primary source gets immediately distorted when it goes from point A to point B through Z. Uh, End of lecture. End of lecture. <laughs> <laughs> but every word of it is true. Every word of it is true. Mm -hmm. Let's switch to the Yankees. They made a trade that many say that they needed to make. Uh, what can the Yankees look like with Juan Soto in that lineup next to Aaron Judge and the rest of that team? Well, he obviously improves them dramatically. Now you have Judge sandwiched between two left-handed hitters. And Soto walks a whole lot. If he continues to draw that many walks, Judge will bat with a guy on base, at least one. If they don't want to walk him ahead of Judge, Soto will see more good pitches to hit. He's been sometimes overly selective in the minds of some. But if he's getting good pitches to hit and at Yankee Stadium, you know, San Diego is not necessarily the best 
home run hitters park. He managed 35 in total last year. You would think if he's healthy, he's good for 40 or more as a member of the Yankees. Then you have a healthy Rizzo batting behind Judge. Now that's a fall off from Soto, but still Rizzo was a respected left-handed bat. And what they really have waiting in the wings, uh, set to join them after Tommy John surgery sometime midseason, is the switch hitting rookie Dominguez. So they could potentially have Judge going back to his natural position in right field. You could have left-handed hitting Soto in left field, switch hitting Dominguez in center field, and Judge in right field. That is a great part of the lineup. Mm-hmm. Without a doubt. Now let's someday. <laughs> we'll table the baseball talk and let's get into your career. Um, one of your passions has been baseball play by play. Why do you think that throughout all the other sports that you've broadcasted, that's been your main passion throughout your entire career? Well, I have great interest in and uh, fondness for other sports, especially basketball. Uh, basketball has always been my second favorite and I've enjoyed college basketball and lucky enough to be part of the NBA on NBC in the 90s and early 2000s, which was an incredible era for the league. And the way NBC covered it, leave me out of it, I was just lucky to be part of it. But the way NBC covered it, with all due respect to everybody else, like I love uh, Ernie Johnson and Kenny Smith and Barkley and Shaq. They all do an excellent job. Kevin Harlan, Ernie Johnson, they all do a great job. I mean, I meant to say uh, Kevin Harlan and Brian Anderson. I already mentioned Ernie Johnson. Um, but the overall presentation of the NBA and NBC was just incredible. Uh, so I enjoyed that very much. Baseball, however, has always been my favorite sport from the time that I was a kid. Uh, when I was a kid, baseball was still the unquestioned national pastime. And the World Series got gigantic ratings. And the Saturday afternoon baseball game of the week, which I was lucky eventually to be part of, got substantial ratings. Sometimes regular season games getting higher ratings than postseason games get now. So that's the eras in which I grew up uh, with baseball. Uh, Baseball has the deepest and richest history of any of the team sports that we follow in America. It's a different kind of broadcasting. Even with the pitch clock now, which has been a good thing, generally speaking, there's still more time for conversation, more time between pitches. Not every pitch or not every play is consequential or spectacular in nature. It's just more of a a conversationalist game. The relationship with your partner in the booth is different. You call upon more history. You call upon more anecdotes. And then all of a sudden, it's punctuated by some really exciting play or set of circumstances. So I think that baseball broadcasting, when done well, calls on a wider range of broadcasting skills than the other sports do. And you've got to dive into that in the past few years with TBS doing playoff rounds. What has that experience been like to just be back and calling postseason baseball? Well, I enjoy baseball. Um, And the reason I did it in that case was that Jeff Zucker, whose first job out of Harvard was being my researcher at the 1988 Seoul Olympics, and then ran first the Today Show and all of NBC Universal. Um, So he and I have a long history and deep friendship. And when he ran CNN, he asked me if I wanted to be a CNN contributor. So I said yes, because of our relationship. And then briefly, he was the head of Turner Sports before a lot of things went sideways uh, for him and Time Warner. Um, So during that brief period of time, 
he asked me if I'd like to be part of the baseball coverage. Had it not been Jeff, I don't think anyone else would have asked that. I certainly wouldn't have said yes, uh, because I was already at the baseball network. So I was already from its inception. So I'd already been part of that. How much have you had to change your style, if at all, when calling baseball games as the rules and the game has changed throughout the years? I think it's mostly just the past year. Uh, the game became too slow. Instead of having its appropriate, pleasing, leisurely pace, it had a plodding, lethargic pace. Then they corrected that, and it was an overwhelming success this year. So you have to be mindful uh, that there isn't going to be as much time between pitches, but you can still pick your spots. A uh, ball is fouled off, and the batter can wander a little bit, or you're allowed one timeout per at-bat. If the batter takes that timeout and steps out of the box, that's the time to slip in the little note that you might have prepared for whatever situation it is in the game. Uh, and if you're deft about it, you know, here we're having a conversation that's open-ended. You just realize when you're on the air live how big the windows are. And you slip in and out of those windows. Without a doubt. Um, you mentioned you're on the back nine. You've accomplished a lot in your career, obviously. Is there anything else that you want to do um, before you officially say this is it? No, not in particular. Uh, I just like to do the things that I'm most interested in now. Uh, mm -hmm. I think my contributions at CNN, while small, are worthwhile. Uh, I went back to HBO for a couple of years to do essentially the same kind of show I'd done there for eight or nine years before I had to leave HBO to join the baseball network. HBO wanted me to stay then, but they said you have to pick between because we demand cable exclusivity. And it was a tough choice because HBO at that time was a performer's paradise. But I chose baseball for the reasons we've been discussing. NBC didn't have baseball anymore. And baseball has always been my favorite sport. So I went to the baseball network. I don't regret it. Then the landscape changed and uh, HBO was willing to share me in a certain sense uh, in the cable universe with baseball. So I went back to HBO and we did two seasons worth of shows that were well received. Um, and it was what I had set out to do. I felt good about it. But as you probably have noticed, Alex, uh, HBO Sports basically has shuttered its doors. They don't exist anymore. Uh, Real Sports with Bryant Gumble ended in December. Uh, Bomani Jones' show, my show, they've long since given up inside the NFL, long since given up boxing. They used to produce three or four really good award-winning sports documentaries every year. They were down to one. Now, if they ever do a sports documentary, it'll be folded into their overall documentary unit. So essentially, and HBO Sports wants the gold standard of a certain kind of sports programming doesn't exist anymore, which is regrettable. Not so much for me. I mean, I had a long run with them just as I had a long run at NBC. But it's regrettable from my standpoint, just as a, a viewer, that something like Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel is gone. Uh, just because the landscape changed uh, at HBO and landscape changed throughout media. You know, HBO used to be the place to go for a certain kind of television. They still do great television, but you can get some of that kind of overlapping stuff at Netflix or Apple or whatever, or Paramount or Peacock or whatever it may be. It's just a, a greatly changed business model and everybody in what passes now for television 
is scrambling to try and figure out what the future of TV is and to put their resources in the most productive place. Let's say a season three did come back. Who was one person you didn't get to interview in the first two that you would have loved to? That's a good question. I haven't even really thought about it. Um, who did we pursue that we didn't get? Uh, I'll get back to you. Uh, let's move on. And uh, it's my favorite part of any interview I do. It's called the Fab Five. It's five questions and you have as much time to answer them if necessary. If you were to host a podcast with anyone in your phone contacts, who would you choose? Keep hitting me with questions I haven't really thought about because I'm not going to host a podcast. <laughs> you know, by the way, while I wish you well with this, the next census will show that one in every three Americans has a podcast. How does anyone make their way through that thicket unless they're willing like Joe Rogan, whether you like him or not, or a few other people, Mark Marin, people like that, to make that your sole focus. To do it every day, to do it five days a week for a couple of hours or whatever it might be. Um, and I'm certainly not willing to devote that kind of time to, to almost anything anymore. Um, of all the people that are in, again, I don't know. I haven't got an answer, which indicates that I, that I don't care that much. <laughs> so Bob Costas will not be hosting any podcasts anytime soon. Uh, no, it's, I, I realize it's a good format for me. Yeah. It's a yeah. good format for me. It was 20 years ago. And if there wasn't so damn much podcasting out there, maybe I'd do it. <laughs> but it's a moot point now. So it's who also you... a moot point who I'd book on the show. <laughs> Who would you consider, this is going to be interesting, who would you consider to be on your Mount Rushmore for sports talk radio hosts? Sports talk radio hosts? Yes. Um, you know, I think you have to put uh, Chris Russo and Mike Francesa up there because of the impact they had. You know, all sports radio basically didn't exist until, I guess, 1987 when WFAN came along with it. There were sports talk programs for decades prior to that, but they usually occupied an hour or two on a station's daily schedule, and they did that station did other things. Uh, so Mike and the Mad Dog broke through uh, and had a significant run. So the two of them have to be on there. Maybe if you're looking to save space, they occupy one of those spaces. Uh, and I'm not really attuned to it enough to do rankings. Uh, but, you know, Dan Patrick would certainly be up there. I, mean, I think Dan does a show that's both entertaining and not least common denominator. Uh, he tr he had, tries to have reasonably thoughtful conversations. He's well-informed, um, but at the same time, it's entertaining. I like Rich Eisen. Uh, Colin Cowherd always has different takes and a different way of expressing it than other people do. But I'm probably forgetting people, overlooking people. I'm not a definitive source on this. The only time, to be honest, the only time I ever hear radio anymore is when I'm in the car. And then occasionally I'll come across something. So when I talk about Rich Eisen or Dan Patrick, I'm seeing segments of their show on YouTube. Right. I'm not listening to them in real time 99% of the time. Were you ever offered or ever considered a sports talk show? Like, was that ever an option yes. or an idea for you? Yeah, many times. Uh, and I did one. 
I did one back in the day on KMOX in the 70s and 80s. They actually pioneered it in the early 1960s, sports open line every night, like from six to eight or six to seven, if the Cardinals had a game that night, uh, they build themselves as the sports voice of St. Louis and they had every important thing. When they had a football team, the games were on KMOX, uh, Missouri's games, the Blues games, and of course the Cardinals. So I hosted that show, I was in my twenties, I hosted those shows uh, a good many times for a five or six year stretch. But subsequent to that is what you're talking about. When I was at NBC, yeah, uh, I was I was offered that type of show and other types of radio programs. But my dance card was too full to consider it. Yeah, makes sense. I don't know how Michael K does it between doing a show Monday through Friday and then yeah. being the voice of the Yankees. That's it's. I give him credit. No, very often. You know, I I think uh, Michael, Don, and Peter are a very interesting trio. Very often, he's doing his talk show from Yankee Stadium and then pivots to call the Yankee game that night. And being prepared, even when you're the voice of a team, so you know them pretty well night to night, being prepared for each game isn't just a matter of showing up and looking at the lineup card. So I don't know how he manages to be as well-informed as he is across the board about sports in general and then specifically to the Yankees. That's that calls for a lot of focus and a lot of work. Mm -hmm. And the last one for the Fab Five, if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But well, I'm about I'm about two for four on the first <laughs> four. So <laughs> is there a young and up and coming sportscaster that you think can be a voice that is among one of the best maybe 25 years from now? Noah Eagle. Ian Eagle's son, Noah. He sounds a bit like his dad, who is an excellent sports broadcaster. You can factor in my bias. Dad and son both went to Syracuse. Um, every time you turn around now, somebody who went to Syracuse is in the business. They're multiplying like so many Mike wielding rabbits. Uh, I guess it's the reputation of the university so that some of the people most interested in being sports broadcasters and some of the cream of the crop in terms of potential gravitate there. Uh, but Noah is only 26 years old, and he is incredibly good. If you didn't know who he was or how old he was, and you just tuned into one of the NFL games he's done late this season, and he did, I guess, Browns and Texans this past weekend, and somebody told this guy's 45 years old and he's been doing it at this level for 20 years, you'd say, yeah, and he's pretty damn good. But he's been doing it at this level for about five minutes, and he's 26, and he's pretty damn good. So I would say that his upside is the highest, but even if he just treads water right where he is, he's already extremely good. And Bob, the last question I have for you, when you look back at your career, what's one moment that just says, wow, I can't believe I was there to witness it or be on the call for that kind of moment? Yeah, you know, I could probably credibly list two dozen of them, but I've settled on three when this question is asked. Muhammad Ali lighting the torch in Atlanta in 96 at the opening ceremony. Michael Jordan's last shot as a bull turning defeat into victory in game six of the 98 NBA finals, capping the six championships. And he was the MVP in all of those finals. And Kirk Gibson's pinch hit home run in game one of the 1988 World Series for the Dodgers against the A's, 
Vin Scully called it on television, Jack Buck on radio, two of the greatest calls on the same play ever in baseball history. But I was NBC's pregame and postgame host. So I was in the Dodger dugout in the corner of the dugout waiting to see how the game would end. And then I jumped out on the field and interviewed Gibson. My contribution to it was small, but you're asking me about a moment I was involved in. That was about as theatrical and dramatic as any baseball moment I've ever seen. In fact, we likened it leading into game two to Robert Redford's at bat as Roy Hobbs in The Natural, which had only come out recently at that time. So it was in the public consciousness. And a great producer, David Neal at NBC, my sole contribution was after the game, I said that reminded me of Redford's at bat as Roy Hobbs. And he intercut Gibson's at bat with Redford's at bat. And it was amazing, some of the similarities. And when you have a live game on television, as opposed to a beautifully staged and directed and performed movie, but Barry Levinson had as many takes as he needed. Harry Coyle at NBC was doing it live in real time. And every cut was perfect. You couldn't improve upon it. If you looked at every frame and had a chance to change it, you wouldn't change a thing. And Kirk Gibson himself has said that the way he remembers that moment, the centerpiece of his excellent career, is partly him standing in the batter's box. After all, he did it. Partly what he remembers in that moment but also partly how he has seen it through Vin Scully's eyes, through Harry Coyle's eyes, how he's heard it through Jack Buck's eyes and voice, how we repackaged it, including Robert Redford. His memory of it is at least 50% based on how it was covered and presented, which shows you, even though what we do is not going to change the course of Western civilization, but Every craftsman wants his or her work to exemplify the best of what they're capable of. And when sports broadcasters and producers and directors have done their job at a high level, it enhances how people experience and then remember those moments. One follow-up to that, obviously you touched on you working with Vince Scully. What is one thing that you learned that stuck with you throughout your whole career from Vin? I think it's the same thing that he learned from Red Barber when he was a young man side by side with Red in Brooklyn, uh, that you can't rest on your laurels, that each game is a new test, and that preparation is paramount. Uh, Vin liked to quote the legendary actor Sir Lawrence Olivier in saying the key to success was the humility to prepare and then the confidence to bring it off. So you know when you go into the booth, whether it's a studio for the Olympics or whether it's the World Series, you're only gonna use a fraction of what you've prepared, but you're not sure which fraction. Maybe you can say almost certainly I'll get these dozen things in, but then it depends upon how the event or the game goes. And then the longer you've been around, and Vin did it for 67 years, the longer you've been around, some of your preparation is just the life and career that you've had. You have no idea, if you're Vin Scully, that something that happens in the game is going to remind you of a story about Jackie Robinson or Sandy Koufax. But that's in your mind. That's part of the preparation, years and years. Uh, I don't think anyone can match Vin in that respect, but any good broadcaster has that if he's been around for a while. 
Bob, thanks so much for your time to come on the Whole Story podcast today. Thank you, Alex. Good questions and uh, reasonably decent answers from me. Questions <laughs> were answers. Questions in some cases were better than the answers because I didn't have any answers for some <laughs> of them. That's fine. No problem. You you'll, you'll, you can get back to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to have to make sure that I uh, think about these for the future in case anybody else pops those questions. <laughs>